To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, Anthony Temple admitted he shot his father. But an open and shut case is complicated by discoveries about the shooter and his victim. We'll discuss the Netflix series, I Just Killed My Dad. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, I'm so excited about Thursday. Why? Because we're going to be doing a live crime writers on Zoom call thingy. Yes. We're going to record on Zoom and we'll talk more about it in the business section, but I just, uh, I don't want to forget about it. Go to crimewriterson.com, get the Zoom link. Everybody can come in and watch us do our funny thing. All right. Is this one going to be clothing optional too, or do we? (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, why do something different? Toby. Uh, the Zagnut shirt. Nice. Nice. Lars wearing a Zagnut shirt. Yeah. Also huh. with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, author of Dead on Deadline and the upcoming The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. Yeah. Exeter is about to get hopping with the release of book two. So I hope to see you all there. And finally, our resident Doubting Thomas, author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our very own Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. All right. So, Kevin, uh, I believe this is our final weekly show of the summer, right? right? We'll only have one on Monday and then the following week, Monday and Thursday releases. Yeah. So what is coming up on next Monday's show? On Monday's show, we're going to be talking about the new Wondery podcast, Who Killed Daphne? By the way, that's the review we're going to be doing on our live broadcast on Zoom. More information about that in the business section. Also, on Thursday, next Thursday, we're back to bi-weekly episodes. We are going to be talking about The Sunshine Place. Okay. Well, you know, we have a really interesting topic to talk about, so I'd like to just get right to it. Should I go ahead and drop that first clip right now, Kevin? Do it. All right. Well, it's important because my life is on the line and I want people to know that I'm not I'm not crazy and I'm not a murderer and I'm innocent. In June 2019, Anthony Temple told police he shot his father after an argument in their Baton Rouge home. It seemed to be a straightforward case, but then information came to light about Anthony that even he didn't know about. Part of the puzzle is this flyer that actually surfaced from over a decade ago claiming Tom Play was taken from his own home by his own father. This all raised new questions about the victim. Was Bert Temple the generous provider he seemed? Or did his controlling ways drive his son to commit murder? The way I saw him and then behind closed doors is a completely different person. He did a real good job of of hiding it, and that and that it really angers me. Netflix presents the three-part series, I Just Killed My Dad. Director Sky Borgman provides a look at Anthony's complex psyche and brings us inside his legal case as his lawyer attempts to learn who this family really was. Spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about plot points from I Just Killed My Dad. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes, 
for our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. The title is a pretty big spoiler though, right? Pretty much. <laughs> Additional note, I am the host of Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcast. We have not covered this documentary on that podcast and my affiliation with Netflix has not influenced, nor does it ever influence my review. Laura Bricker, we have to just get something out of the way because yep. at least for us, maybe not for our audience, but for us, it is an elephant in the room. Uh, poor Anthony looks just like my son, Teddy Lavoy. Does he not? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And I had just seen Teddy Lavoy like maybe two weeks ago before we taped this podcast. And I was like, first thing I'm like, oh God, he has the same hair as Teddy. And then I'm like, oh God, he's making the same. I'm like, it just like literally every time I looked at it, I was like, I was just so distracted because it looked just like Teddy. Yeah. But which and time was, for Anthony? Because he really is a chameleon. Yes. Each time we see him, he looks different. Well, the time he's sitting in the weird barn and I'm like, why is he sitting in the weird barn? And like, that's where they're doing the interview. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I know our audience doesn't care, but Kevin, it was a giant distraction in many ways for us. And actually, Teddy kept walking into the room while we were watching this and I was like, look. And he was like, huh. Don't see it. <laughs> All right. So, Kevin, here we are. Yet another Sky Borgman yeah. documentary. It's um, the summer of Sky. <laughs> so what is up with that? Well, I, you know, I think, uh, I mean, we really like the work of Sky Borgman. For those who don't remember, she did Abducted in Plain Sight, which was a crazy fucking documentary. She also did The Girl in the Picture, which was a big hit on Netflix this past summer. And in the fall or a couple of months from now, we're going to see another thing from her which I think it's called Sins of My Mother, Sins of the Mother. Sins of Our Mother, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, you know, Sky has a, a good eye for stories to cover. And yeah, this is a really interesting case that she was able to dig into. All right. So, Toby, this story has something, an element to it that we hear all the time, which is prosecutors talking about something extra textual besides actual evidence which is, quote, the look in the perpetrator's eyes or his affect. Thoughts about that? Uh, as I said before, it just drives me freaking insane. This idea that you would have some superpower where you could take a look at somebody's face or facial expression or eyes and somehow determine their, their guilt or innocence. And especially in this case where that's really almost besides the point because people know what happened. It's just a matter of the circumstances that surround it. And she doesn't end up seeming as unreasonable as she does at the beginning. But at the beginning, she's like, I looked in his eyes and there was nothing there. It was vacant. And so could I let this guy back out on, on the street? When I watched the interview the first time, it was like, oh, my gosh, there's not a tear shed for his father. As you learn more about him, you can kind of understand what the deal was. But even if he didn't know that, he's like, well... It's likely that he's scared out of his mind as a 17-year-old who's being tried as an adult, as in an adult jail. So how do you think you can get anything out of his expression in his eyes? It's, it's just bizarre. It's just a horrible way to think that the justice system works is by the impression that a prosecutor has by looking at somebody. Yeah, I agree that the idea of trying to determine someone's actual guilt based on how they reacted or how they didn't react, uh, I think, is very problematic. I will say as far as the documentary goes, and this is probably something that played into you know the thoughts of police and the defense and whatnot, is that you know we know right off the bat that what happened and that Anthony doesn't seem to be really upset by his actions. So we're puzzled as, why did he think he was just going to go home and, you know, he says up front that he's innocent and his sort of detached affect is, you know, really disconcerting. 
I think part of where we're going, because we already, you know, we're not going to spend this documentary wondering if he was the gunman. We want to know why. And so I start off thinking, okay, uh, is he a sociopath or does he have an antisocial disorder? And as this unfolds, we see that, you know, more of the circumstances which might account for that affect. So while, you know, God, please don't hold his affect against him in court, I think as we are exploring him, as a subject in a documentary, that's a point to watch. And because we're trying to figure out, is that his nature or was that his nurture? So, Laura, one of the things I always think about with this affect conversation, and I'm not going to give any examples from recent cases because I do not want to get a million viral trolls tweeting me, is that you cannot win with affect, right? If you're too calm, then you're soulless. If you're too expressive, you're faking it. Like, you cannot win, right? And then in this kid's case, what we see as blank affect, there is a reason. Like, that is, like, psychiatric and psychological, yeah. as we later find out, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, as I was listening to the prosecutor talk about his his lack of affect, you know, I'm like, this is like this sort of setup that we see in the, you know, okay, we're being led to believe, like Kevin said, is he a sociopath? And then we're getting the flip. Now, his home life was a freaking nightmare. So yeah, his expressionless sort of delivery and the way that he was talking is actually an indicator of longstanding abuse, isolation, and basically living in fear for his whole life and having to survive in this situation with this father who is just absolutely from all accounts in the way that it's described, both from Anthony and from women that were with him, very abusive. So I think that really makes a lot more sense when you get that context. But whether, you know, that's going to translate again, you're not going to, are you going to be able to introduce this information in the trial in such a way that you have concrete information about that abuse that doesn't necessarily like because you can't just look at somebody and be like, oh, I think this person's guilty. I think this, you know, that's that's not how it works. So you can't just look at his vacant expression and the fact that he's not exhibiting emotion when he's talking about this and use that in a way that's actually contributing to the decision making in this case. One of the things I was really surprised by, and I think this is and this is going to come up. I'm going to talk about this probably later, maybe in my review of this, uh, probably a, a symptom of the fact that Anthony's white was the professionalism and care with which he was interviewed by this police officer when he was brought into the station. But one of the things that comes out when he is asked about his schooling is whether he can read or write. And he says, you know, I can write. I know all the letters. If you're homeschooled, do you have different grade levels? No. My education is not great. Okay. You know how to read? I know how to read. You know how to write? And write every letter in the alphabet. Uh, he's a 17-year-old. And we learn from his stepmother that he basically can't. Right, Laura? I think, yes. And, and that particular detail with the stepmother showing the piece of paper where he's writing his letters and learning basically the extent of his isolation, that was so heartbreaking to see that part unfold. Because to me, that was one of those details almost more than anything that really conveyed how awful and how isolated and how abusive Anthony's childhood was. And then, you, you know, obviously there was the cultural references that he was missing. Like he didn't know who like certain actors were. He didn't know anything about his mother, things like that. 
there was a lot that when it starts to come out, but that particular detail and when she was showing the sheet of paper, I was like, oof, that was like one of those like really kind of gets you in the gut moments when you're thinking about what this person went through. What do you think of the fact that no one caught that he wasn't going to school, Toby? Because I know that happens in New Hampshire because like homeschooling rules here are very lax. You, know, you can essentially just attest that you're homeschooling your kids here and, you know, the state will say, OK, I don't know what they're like in uh, Louisiana. But were you surprised that like no one ever caught on to the fact that this kid wasn't even getting an education of any kind? Yeah, it seems. I mean, again, I, I don't know much about homeschooling or what kind of checks there are for things like that. But the stepmom, for instance, like that would seem like a red flag to me if I was her. And I think it was for her family. It's just like, what the fuck? Why isn't this kid going to school? And he's not just not going to school. He's not getting any kind of supplemental anything at home. And then mm-hmm. when the dad fills out his job application for some nursery, he puts down Kaplan Prep, which is an SAT prep program, or it's a prep program for a lot of those standardized tests. He had to fill it out because his son couldn't write. Yeah, he couldn't write. Couldn't yeah. write. And, uh, you know, they do talk to the father's, like, quote unquote, best friend. And it's like, well, yeah, he seemed kind of checked out and stuff. It just seemed like there was no, there wasn't a whole lot of concern for the kid. I think the stepmom, after the fact, sort of is it gets some distance and is able to kind of see what happened. And I think the stepbrother is probably like the one ally that he has, but he's also the victim of abuse. And I think he, there wasn't really a way for him to stand. I mean, there was a way, but I, it was going to be kind of fruitless for him to stand up. And I think both kids saw that when it comes to bringing in the law, it has no effect, right? There's no, the police won't do anything about it and it just leads to more trouble for them. So it, it, it seems like the isolation was pretty total. Did anyone get the, the sense or to the extent that uh, Anthony was living off the grid? Was the government even aware that there was an Anthony who wasn't going to school or anything like that? It all, just All I could think of was, thank God he had that job. Because yeah. the government had to be where he existed because he had to fill out like a W-2 or whatever, yeah, right? must have a social security number, And if number, he didn't yeah. have that job, like nobody would have known him. Like those are the people that yeah. knew him were his coworkers. And we saw that it was his coworker uh, who was the one who sort of triggered the investigation into like who he was after he was arrested. And who the one who sort of was his advocate after he was arrested, who believed like there must have been something else going on. It was his colleague at the nursery, right? Yeah. I was looking on there to see what it said for education, and it said Kaplan Prep. When I went back and researched Kaplan Prep School, it was actually not a prep school. It was a website to order standardized testing materials. So he actually never went to, was never homeschooled. That's when I kind of thought, okay, maybe something is going on. But there's also these these court cases, right? When, you know, the custody was being... I guess fought over. I mean, it, it all seems kind of sketchy, but it's just surprising with these with these court cases that there wasn't any kind of follow up whatsoever. And maybe that's just the way the justice system is down there. But yeah, I mean, if he hadn't gotten the job, he could have just gone on and on and on. It seems because nobody seemed that interested, and the people who knew him were so cowed by the father. I think that that they weren't going to do anything about it. All right, so Kevin, here we are. It is time for the business section. Yep, yep, yep. What have we got going on on our Patreon right now? Well, you can listen to the latest episode of Leave It to Bricker. Brixie! Laura's always getting in trouble. And Laura, tell us about the latest episode. 
So you guys, oh my gosh, I love it when I get a random call from Dean the UFO guy. Um, (laughs) He called me last weekend and he said, Laura, you have to get over to the new development that's happening at the section in town. They found what could be the Exeter catacombs. And I was like, oh my God. I am there. And so I went out immediately and investigated, and you will learn all about what I found in the next Leave it to Bricker. Oh, <laughs> mysteries in her small, quaint AF town of Exeter, New Hampshire. <laughs> like mummies and stuff down there. They wouldn't let me go down the ladder, so I'm not sure, but <laughs> no, I got as much time, information. Yeah, yeah there, there's this thing called OSHA, apparently. Yeah. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go back after hours, Laura. We also have uh, our latest episode of Married with Podcasts, Ooh. where Rebecca and I dish out uh, relationship advice for our listeners. By the way, tomorrow night, you can, if you are a member of Crime Writers on Nation, you can take part and watch Toby's live recording of the Deep Dive. He's going to be talking about the book When the Moon Turns to Blood. It's by Leah Satilli. In fact, Toby, this is the, this is the other case that uh, Sky Borgman has been doing. She'll have her documentary about the same case out you know, later this year. But we all know that Leah does a great job in her reporting. I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are and the thoughts of your guests, which include Janet Varney, Sarah D. Bunting, and Amber Hunt, right? All-star panel. All-star wow. panel. Yeah. So that's that's tomorrow night, September 6th. Yeah, and that podcast will be out later on in your Patreon feed. Yep. Also want to let you know uh, the latest episode of These Are the Stories is out. And it's about uh, Barbara's unconditional love. <gasps> Remember the last episode of the last season? I do. And we'll get into that. Last thing we want to let you know about this Thursday. Okay. We're going to be doing a live recording of Crime Writers On. Yay! The four of us will be on Zoom. Yay! And anybody can just jump on and watch us record and yell at each other and swear and see what we're drinking and all the usual behind-the-scenes crap that you don't ever get to see. Just go to CrimeWritersOn.com. The Zoom link is there. Anybody can come on, doesn't cost anything. Yes. And we'd love to have you. They can see Toby's amazing outfits. They can see Laura paying super focused attention during the whole taping like she always does. Yeah, like a squirrel runs by. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited for that. All right, so Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Petter Nybreton and Beth Vorl. Bless you. Bless you, Petter and Beth, and everybody who supports us on Patreon. And of course, bless you to all of our listeners who endure the business section week after week. Uh, Kevin, does thus end it? Thus ends the business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out right now. Laura, you also have questions about how this was able to go on for as long as it did, how the situation with Anthony's father, basically him creating this fortress in this home that they lived in and isolating this kid was able to go on for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing is you're you're hearing about this and the details are coming out. You know, I'm thinking, okay, well, like we were saying before, uh, there's some record of this guy. There were these other court cases about the custody with Anthony, but you're like, who was missing him that would have even known to report that something was going on here. And I think that's what's so troubling about this is it's, you know, we've done other cases like this where you'll have somebody that, you know, actually the last one we did where, you know, the girl was taken when she was a child and we're like, how did this happen for so long that nobody knew she was missing? And in this case, you know, there are definitely signs of trouble when you hear it in hindsight, 
But it seems like the only one that thought it was troubling was this coworker of Anthony's who noticed, you know, there was like a tracker on his phone and that the dad would like call if he hadn't moved for more than half an hour. Like he was actually like really keeping tabs. And, you know, she was worried because Anthony didn't know like who Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise were or didn't know about his relatives or didn't know like things like how to high five somebody. So there were warning signs that people thought, oh, that person's like, oh, there's something odd here. But when you see the totality of what happens where I killed my dad, you're like, God, what could have happened differently? Or is it even possible for something to have happened differently? Because nobody even really knew that he was being held. I'm going to just say being held hostage because I mean, it really feels like he was being held prisoner in this house by this father. Like, what could have happened differently to have a different outcome where he would not have been in that situation? And I guess I don't see any other path forward because who would have known? You know what I mean? Yeah. Kevin, what do you think about, um, so we learn in the documentary that Anthony was basically taken after this custody situation from mm-hmm. his mother. His mother is still alive, but Anthony was told that she didn't want to have anything to do with him. And she says that she, you know, wasn't able to locate him. But it seems to me very much like she's has, and I don't want to judge her. She was obviously a victim of abuse and she obviously uh, is very traumatized by that abuse. Yeah. I have a theory that at some point, psychologically she sort of made a choice of self-preservation and that you know hindered her ability to find this is anthony's mother not the stepmother yeah yes what do you think of that situation and you know i mean it was very heartbreaking yeah you know i'm i'm not quite certain what to make of the mother and and her family but i do know that if she had money that she could have fought this in court in a different manner and she just doesn't and we this is a recurring theme in all these criminal and civil cases that we've we've covered is that money buys you into a different kind of justice system. And it's just fucking weird. And no one really is held accountable for a judge in one state giving her custody and a judge in another state allowing him to just fucking take her with no custody plan, no parental sharing plan. It just it's to the extent where also then he takes her and can just essentially go underground, not even go underground, but just, you know, able to become invisible to the mom. It's um, that is a troubling issue that I th- would hope that officials would explore because sometimes they do look at sort of what was the underlying breakdown in the system that caused this to happen. It wasn't that the school didn't realize that Anthony was, you know, never came in or something like that. It was that the dad was able to you know, send a cop in literally into the house to grab the young child and just essentially kidnap him. So, Toby, this is something I think the documentary does not do a great job with is answering some of these why questions. So, like, we don't know, for instance, I don't think what Anthony's dad does for a living or what his footprint is on the Internet that would make him so difficult for the mom to track down. Did you find yourself just like with questions like that along the way, just sort of like, well, why is this this way? Why is this that way? Yes, I did. And I I think for me, the biggest one is you sort of see over the course of the show, like this change of heart by the prosecutor. And like, all you do is you see the effect, right? Is you see her sort of come around to understanding the scope of the abuse and change her idea about what would be an adequate punishment or a fair punishment. 
but you don't know why. And at one point, the defense lawyer, who's who's sort of an interesting character, uh, says, we talked a lot, but you don't know like how that went. So you're kind of left to sort of assume that she becomes, you know, made aware of the same information that you're being made aware of, but that's not clear. And that to me seemed like, like you could even just ask her, why did you change your mind so much? But she essentially, all you do is you get, you, she goes from, I took a look in his eyes and I couldn't see putting him back on the street to, it, it seems like an equitable thing to do would be, to give him, you know, negligent homicide and essentially time served. And that would be adequate. And it's like, well, why? Like, how did that journey happen? It's just, it's strange. Like, it feels like it's building to some courtroom climax or, or something like that. But in fact, it's just like, well, then she agreed that she agreed with our theory of the case. So now he's, now this is where he is. He's free. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, Anticlimactic. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so now he's going to hang out with his mom uh, by this pond. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, it almost made it seem, Lauren, I'm guessing maybe like COVID was the problem here because we saw people with masks in the background coming in out of the courthouse or whatever. But like, it's almost like the viewer, we don't get the satisfaction of seeing this badass lawyer do his job after we're introduced to what a badass he is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and because he definitely had a lot of sympathy for Anthony, like he, you know, related a lot. He was definitely going to stand up for him. But I think this might have benefited from a little bit more time because, you know, we have that COVID factor where we're filming during COVID. But now we also like I would like to know what happens to Anthony now, like after this horribly shitty, abusive childhood, after everything that happens, like what kind of life does he have going forward? Is he recovering? Is he in therapy? Is he with his mother? I think that scene with his mother and his grandmother when they're out there was like, for me, one of the most heartbreaking slash awkward scenes of this documentary because they were all just so uncomfortable. No, I just said, I want you to be happy. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm pretty happy right now. You still got a lot more lives to go. Oh, yes. I've started over many times. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 82 years old, so I may not get to see you again after this, but remember me. All right. Okay. So I guess I just want to know more, like, what's next? If we're not going to see the court scene and we're not going to see that guy take the, you know, this case forward, I kind of want to know, like, what happens next with Anthony? Kevin, it really was a stroke of luck that he got this free, badass attorney, right? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that we got from this guy, and I don't know, sort of, he's this street tough you know, lawyer, I I don't know if I really saw that or not, but the mock jury focus group exercise I thought was really interesting. One of the things it does is it gives us insight into something we don't usually see, which is, you know, deliberation process. What do average people think about the story we've just heard, right? It, you know, it ends up being a fill-in, you know, for an actual trial because we don't get that. And it also creates a little bit of narrative tension that however you feel about Anthony's case, you see that it's going to be hard to present it in a way that a bunch of people are going to rally around. Average people are going to rally around. So that that I found really fascinating. Hmm. Laura, what did you think about the fact that Anthony's dad's wife, ex-wife, his stepmother, who clearly, you know, has very complicated feelings about this killing Because she's talking about it at the beginning. She's obviously, you know, she was abused by this guy as well. 
Uh, but they were married and she has also complicated feelings about her leaving Anthony behind. But, you know, he was her stepson. Uh, but that she is, ends up really embracing him at the end. She and her son really see him still as family. What did you think about those scenes? Uh, that was something, you know, there's not a lot of good in that kid's life. So it was nice to see. And, and honestly, like we were saying before, there was like, who could have reported this? Who could have done something different? How could this have ended differently? And and up until, you know, she's in the house, there really isn't anybody that knows what it's really like living in that house. So the fact that she then, you know, does come forward in a way to offer support and stick with him, I think that also validates that, yes, clearly what he went through was horrible. She recognizes that. She recognizes that he doesn't have any support system, really, and she steps in. And in a case like this, it's nice to see, like, something good happen at the end because there's not a lot of good that's happening in there. Yeah. And then, of course, he's reunited with his mother and his grandmother at the end. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I, I just to me, that was very heartbreaking because, I, you know, we got this window into this sort of, you know, generational systemic abuse that the women in that family have been subjected to. And it really sets up how how this did play out, how the mother did get to the point where when, you know, the father was fighting for custody, she wasn't able to continue fighting. And, and you sort of you really do understand why. But it felt really sad to me watching those scenes because I just felt like they were well, they were clearly staging them. They're like, here, come sit at this picnic table here, come sit by this pond. And and you could see how uncomfortable they were because they don't really know each other. It, and it just, doesn't it, work. It just felt like it didn't feel real to me. <laughs> I yeah, felt, I felt like it just felt very awkward. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. And I was thinking about this last night because you, I watched it and then I thought like this is this was really good. And then I started thinking about what wasn't there. And I know I give all you guys crap for like your complaint is like this could have been this and not talking about what it actually was. And I started thinking about it in this case, I feel like covid really robbed the producers of an opportunity to make a, a great documentary, bring it up a level like The Staircase or Making a Murderer or I think it was How to Fix a Drug Scandal. We had that attorney from Northampton because we really couldn't get in. I mean, there's a lot of telling and not a lot of showing. It's a lot of interviews which give us a lot of information, tells the story, but there's no next level magic where we get into these people's lives and get a little more sense of that. We don't have a moment where Stephen Avery's elderly parents are yelling at each other because they're grilling a hamburger, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and I know the fucking stupid scene, right? We can't get to the next emotional level. And I think that that's because COVID lockdown, this is right in the middle of that. Nobody wants a bunch of camera people wandering around your home. But I also think how much can we really get out of Anthony? Right. Are we going to really get a whole bunch of emotional insight from him if we, you know, we're spending time with him in his house because he doesn't seem to be emotive? Uh, you know, not until the end where we see him cry, do we kind of get a sense of anything that's kind of cooking in his kitchen? So I feel like not that they missed the opportunity and fumbled it, but that they were kind of prevented from really getting that next level inside the crime Let's find out, you know, a whole lot more and have feelings for the attorneys and blah, blah, blah. You know, a lot of it didn't feel real. I will tell you something. I don't think I needed to see Anthony cry at the end. That actually I, that actually kind of bothered me. Mm -hmm. I feel like the whole point was that he couldn't. Right. And so how about the point being that he finally did? 
the whole point was he shouldn't need to have to cry for me to care mm-hmm. that he would that he that he did this to defend himself. Like this, this case is sort of like the Nikki Adamondo case, right? He very likely shot his father to save his own life to get the fuck out of this horrible situation. So the only good victim is a dead victim. Right. But this time it's a kid. Yeah. Right. And so like, do we really need to have him cry at the end for us to believe that that's the case? Right. And Toby, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, I, it was a weird scene because he never actually even says anything. It's just there for the crying. And then they go back to a previous or, or post, I guess, but I think previous interview to have him actually say something. The only thing I really got out of that was that his emotional reaction to it is basically when he's by himself, like when he's with other people, like he, d- he doesn't have an emotional response, but when he's just sitting there by himself in front of the camera with just the producer asking him a question that's when he's sort of reflective on it, which I think just shows how tenuous his bonds with other people are. And it was interesting when you guys were talking about like these awkward setups and I, and I, and I hadn't really thought about it this way. I thought about the awkward setups, but not so much about how it's sort of compensating for the fact that they don't have that much actual genuine stuff, but there's always sort of an artificiality in these things to some extent, unless you've really just got a ton of, archival footage or whatever that you're using, or you have just absolute access. But I thought an especially artificial setup was after you've already watched Anthony sort of awkwardly hug his lawyer once they're free and they're on the courthouse steps or whatever. There's another scene where they're like in a park or something. You see them from a distance hugging and then the lawyer kind of walks off and then you kind of get, closer to Anthony and he's like staring off into the distance on this bench and it's like, Oh, what's going to happen for the rest of his life? I'm like, that's such a weird artificial thing. Is that really their last? Are are we supposed to think that's our last meeting? It's like, well, you know, as, as a way of like saying goodbye after this long thing, why don't we meet at this random park where there's nobody and we'll just (laughs) hug and I'll go back to the the parking lot and you can just hang out on this bench for a while. Um, But that's what, that's what it shows. Wait for your Uber. Yeah. And I was just like, they would have gone to waffle house or something. They would not have done that. Yeah. And I think it was supposed to be this sort of emotional catharsis because there's no other way. Cause that's not the way. Anthony kind of reacts around people. So it was a combination of that and then showing him crying, which again, and and we haven't, I mean, this is something we talked about the very, very beginning of crime writers, which is what do documentarians leave in? Like, are you doing a disservice to these people who you're following and who are the subjects of your story by showing these emotional reactions that they're trying to hide? And in this case, there's not even any context for it, right? You just hear the question and then he cries, but you don't, it doesn't lead to anything, right? It's just the fact that he's crying is what, is what you're showing. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I thought that was, it was like difficult to watch. And I think not the decision I would have made with that footage. I think that was, that was fine to let, let him keep his privacy on that one. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out the documentary, I Just Killed My Dad on Netflix? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for I Just Killed My Dad? Um, This is a really interesting case, but I feel like they were probably on a production schedule of when they needed to like contractually get this done. And unfortunately, it happened during COVID. So I'm going thumbs sideways because This is interesting. It's, you know, three parts. It covers everything. We've got a great defense attorney. We've got, 
you know, a study into this victim's family life that in this severe isolation that led to not a spoiler because we know killing his father, but I feel like it would have benefited from a little bit more time so that we could see where this victim goes after this case is resolved and perhaps get a little bit more of the emotion of the, for me, I want to see the emotion of the aftermath and I want to see the recovery and I want to see where Anthony goes next. So I'm, I'm a thumb sideways just because there was some things with it. I was like, eh, but overall the case is interesting and that's, that's why I'm not a thumbs down. Toby Ball. Yeah. I'm a thumb sideways too. I mean, I think there's, there's a really interesting question at the center of this, which is how do you sort of legally conceptualize somebody's life being in danger? Does it have to be like right now I am about to stab you or is it, you're living in a situation in which at any moment I could stab you, uh, but maybe not right at this moment, because I feel like the interesting issue here is at what point are you justified? What, what does self-defense mean when you're living in a wildly abusive relationship? And I think that, that that's an interesting question. I think that's, that's sort of the heart of this documentary for whatever reason whether it's because of COVID or whether it's out, I kind of felt like there was a certain surface level aspect of it that it didn't have quite the, the same emotional resonance or the same access that sort of the best documentaries have. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not bad necessarily, but I just feel in the, you know, we've seen a lot of really good documentaries and this just doesn't seem like it's up at that level for whatever reason, because Sky Borgman obviously can make ones that are really good. So yeah, I'm a thumb sideways. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the, it's not the worst, but I think there's just, it doesn't connect in the way the better ones do. Kevin Flynn. Yeah. I'm a mild thumbs up. I uh, think again, this was an interesting case and we are tasked not to figure out the who or the how, but really the why. And uh, that ends up being very hard with, you know, the subject here, this boy who is kind of hard to feel affection towards as a as a subject, as you as a viewer. That's part of what's difficult to get through. It tells a good story, but I feel like I don't know. I'm going to say if the opportunity was missed, but I wonder whether or not there was anything there to mine emotionally with these particular people, because we definitely get we definitely see that they're not coming in after this is all wrapped up. They're coming in in the middle of it. They have access to all these people, and I just don't know if they were able to sort of capture the magic there. They got the craft, but not necessarily the magic involved in that. And I don't know if that's their fault or whether or not just like emotionally, you got a lot of people who are closed off. And if you want to have an emotionally resonant story, that's a big challenge. But as far as the crime itself and what it's told, it's told very well. And I think that if you're uh, you're looking for you know, just an interesting case to kind of dig into, this is this is for you. Yeah. So I agree with everything you said, Kevin. I'm giving it a thumb sideways as well. So I don't know whether this was the very best material that Sky could possibly have gotten. Obviously, it's put together really well, right? But it did not. I didn't connect with it emotionally at all. And I it's not because of Anthony. I think Anthony is. I connected with him tremendously. I mean, I'm the parent of boys who are very recently his age. I found him to be a very empathetic character, but we don't have a protagonist in this story, really. We have Anthony telling us what happened. The closest thing we have to a protagonist is Anthony's lawyer, 
and we spend very little time with him. We don't spend time with him in his office making the phone calls he needs to make to navigate this case. I think of the trial for um, yeah, potential of yeah. this story. We, you know, we could have turned him into like a Rosemary Capiccio, whatever her name was, um, and, and really like dug into his fight a little bit harder. And that maybe is where the residents could have come from. But again, we don't know if there wasn't access there because of COVID or some other reason. So there are just some missing pieces. I have more questions about Anthony's dad, what he did for a living, why he was so isolated and so forth. I have a couple of other questions, too, that I think the documentary could have explored. The domestic violence parallel, uh, why Anthony was able to get the result he was able to get by why so many women don't get the same results when they are accused of the same crime, not an imminent threat of killing. And I also have a lot of questions about the fact that Anthony was white and received a kind of justice that I think a lot of people of color would not receive in a similar situation. And those were questions that the documentary uh, didn't explore and didn't touch. And as a woman, I had questions about domestic violence one and and questions about the, you know, the sort of white sort of privilege underlining this. So well-made didn't connect and a few too many questions. But um, so that's why I'm a thumb sideways on this one. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. The week. Be careful what you throw in the trash cans in Hong Kong. The barrels are labeled litter cum recyclables collection bin. That's right. C-U-M collection bin. Influenced by its years of British colonization, some of Hong Kong's bilingual street signs and government documents contain archaic English phrases. The Latin word cum means combined with. And in the U.S., we use it in phrases like summa cum laude or to describe someone as an actor cum podcaster. Now, we don't usually put the word cum on a street sign, but in Hong Kong, you can see plenty of cum on the walls. There's one sign declaring a building a nursing home cum daycare center. A government press release describes an official going on a cum sharing with youth activity. Other <clears throat> releases refer to cum management, cum facilities, and of course, a cum pumping station. After many Snickers and Facebook posts by Western tourists, oh, look at Lars' face! The oh. government has gone on a campaign to paint over the word or cover it with a sticker with a slash on it, because we'd all rather go to a musical slash carnival than a musical cum carnival. So, panel, it's a big, dirty city. What should Hong Kong do with all this cum? Lars Bricker, what do you think? Um, set up a slip and slide. Oh, oh, jeez, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Toy Bot, what do you think Hong Kong should do with all this cum? Cadbury cream egg factory. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> Kevin, what do you think? I think they need a really big sweat sock. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it there and that's going to do it for us. But before we go, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do have a cat of the week. It is Jerry. He is from Ireland. Jerry is the cat of listener Claire Clark. And Jerry is a twin of my new favorite cat at the horse barn, who's called Sweetie. And so we've been exchanging cat pictures. And uh, Jerry is a very sweet little tabby cat. And I just love an Irish cat. So happy cat of the week, Jerry. You do love the Irish things, as we have learned. I, I do. All right, Laura Bricker, folks from Ireland want to reach out to you on Twitter and pitch their cats to be cat of the week. How can they find you there? They can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to find you on Twitter. How are you found? I'm at Toby Ball NH, and I think that's Claire Clark, who is a frequent uh, deep dive yeah. yes. guest. Mm -hmm. 
Kevin Flynn, what about you? What's your handle? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at Reb Lavoy. Follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our incredible Crime Writers On Facebook group. The folks there are rad. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the incredible Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin P. Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, also referred to as a closet come studio. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Dude, we didn't do like an adult warning before the crime of the week. Okay. So many parents right right now are like... (laughs) Explaining this to children. Sorry, kids. Never listening to that podcast again. Toby Ball's mom is so shocked and upset right now. (laughs) 